Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. I'm coming at you on AM860, The Answer. We are an iHeart station. We are interactive talk radio, and you can reach us at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. And you can listen live anywhere in the world if you have a computer, 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, Eastern Standard Time. Go to drbillradiomd.com and click Listen Live, or you can go to the radio station website and click Listen Live. And if you've got a speaker or a headset on your computer, you got me. Oh, boy, lots of fun. Well, I got a couple topics I wanted to touch on this morning. Uh, I'm going to talk about North Korea and the president's meeting. I guess they had a beer and a hot dog at the, at the uh, DMZ early this morning about 2 a.m. I was uh, 2, 3 a.m. I was awake and watched it live. And the president, the first president in the history of the United States to set foot in North Korea. So that that's a big deal, huh? Yeah, and Trump did it. And him and Kim Jong-un and President Moon, they're all huggy-kissy and shaking hands. We'll talk about that in the second half of the show. I wanted to tell you, I've got uh, Dr. Barbara Hansen on the line uh, this morning, who's a world-renowned obesity expert, and um, she put Sarah Holt onto me. Sarah Holt is a world-famous PBS Nova producer-director who does uh, science films and uh, educational films for PBS Nova, so if you've watched any of the PBS Nova programs, you've undoubtedly seen some of her work. And so she's doing a, 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 a film on obesity and bariatric surgery, you know, where you get some of your stomach cut out. And, of course, as you guys know, I had that done um, a year ago and have been very happy that I had it done, by the way. And so Barbara, who's friends with Sarah, put Sarah on to me, and we talked, and Barbara said, well, what did you have to say, and what did she have to say, and what's the upshot of her of her?" Uh, documentary, and I said, well, Barbara, I don't know, I was the one who was talking, and of course, my opinions are not always exactly like Dr. Barbara Hansen's opinions, and that, that's okay, we're next door neighbors, and we're very close and friendly, and uh, she thinks I'm a, an, a dumb MD, and I think that she's a FUD, PhD, and so we've we've got a little, uh, a little scholastic uh, competitiveness going on. But at any rate, I wanted to bring Dr. Hansen on the show this morning and, and see what she had to say and see if I could debate her a little bit on some of this. Are you are you on with us, my dear? Yes, I am, Dr. Billy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, we, we had a terrible incident the other night. Was it Friday night? The rain came pouring down. I mean, people were getting out of their cars in St. Petersburg and abandoning them on the street. The water was so high. 
but we did manage to make it to the restaurant and we were having a nice conversation uh, but dr hansen's husband is a little bit obnoxious at times we won't uh, we won't reveal the whole story but we want to continue the conversation. Uh, now, Sarah Holt is uh, is world renowned and has received a number of awards for her films and documentaries. And you're friends with her, and uh, you were saying that you wanted to know the upshot of her documentary on bariatric surgery. And I want to know what you think about bariatric surgery as a, a way to treat obesity. Dr. Well, Hansen. Uh, I was interested in the kinds of questions she would mm. ask you because, of course, I've talked with her about mm. my views. Um, I've been teaching the issues related to obesity for many years, and medical students are often very confused about obesity because their primary education has come from the newspapers, the uh, flyers on uh, computers, and a lot of misinformation. Like what? I, well, like uh, it's all because of bad behavior or it's all the composition of the diet you eat. If you just ate a healthy diet, you wouldn't be obese or um, you should just exercise more and eat less and especially mm-hmm. exercise more again. Those are all about 90% false. They all have a little bit of truth, and that's one of the dangerous things about talking about obesity is there's so many viewpoints, so many ways to look at it. It reminds me of um, the old parable of the blind men of Indistan, and they were each feeling a different part of the elephant. One thought it was like a leaf, one thought it was like a tree trunk, etc., well, people who look at obesity often do the same thing. They grab the leaf and they say, see, it's bad behavior. Or they grab the trunk and say, see, it's genetics. And uh, that even happened to me last night. I have to report on that. The uh, pediatric residency program for the University of South Florida had its annual welcoming party to welcome the new uh, residents, first-year residents coming in effective. Monday. And uh, I was talking with the two chief uh, residents. Those would be the ones uh, that are going to be uh, in charge of the fellow residents uh, for the next year. And I was asking them how really they could detect obesity in children and babies. And one of them said, nine months. And I said, really? And she said, yes, at nine months, some of them can weigh as much as 20 pounds, and she said, the mothers are just force-feeding the babies. Every two hours, they give them some more milk, and the baby spits it up, and they give them some more milk. And she said, it's just obvious. And I said, tell me, what did those mothers look like? Invariably obese, invariably. I said, well, see, we've got a problem, but it isn't necessarily the mothers. It it has to do with a lot of genetics. So you asked about genetics, and yes, it's a lot of genetics, no question about it. So, but you hundred percent. Well, what about the behavioral aspect? Aren't aren't uh, isn't uh, the obese mother passing on her her behavior to her child by force feeding her? 
Well, I think that's a very good question. And we don't know if such, I'll call it, as you called it, force feeding, such, such overfeeding behavior makes a positive, that is a, an obesifying environment for a child later in life. And why wouldn't it? Middle age onset obesity. Why, why wouldn't it? Well, first of all, the biggest time that obesity uh, develops is between 30 and 60 years of age. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have any young ones, maybe 5 to 10%, but certainly the obesity we talk about in the newspapers these days is a very heavy dose of middle-age onset obesity. Well, you're talking two different things here, Doc. You're talking, one, you're talking about uh, people who are morbidly obese from childhood, and then you're talking about the general population, which has fattened up over over my lifetime and, and certainly over your lifetime, too, in the United States. I mean, when I was a kid, everybody was skinny. If we saw a 350-pound person, well, you know, all of us kids were running around and pointing. It was like a circus freak. So uh, the, the, you're, you're talking two different things. One is a societal phenomena, which I think goes along with affluence and more food and more leisure time. And the other is what you're referring to as possibly genetic and what I think is probably a mix of genetic predisposition and environmental pressures, and that is people who are morbidly obese from, from childhood and into adulthood, and they're the four or 500 pounders. That's a, I think you're talking two different uh, groups of people, two different subsets. Well, what I wanted to make the point about is um, the relative proportions. The 500-pounders are extremely rare, and we should not characterize those as typical of obesity. Wait a minute. The people that are... 300-pounders, 250-pounders are not rare. Yeah, but once you get over a BMI of about 40, it's, uh, you know you can't turn back anyway. So they're basically the same. And most of the people in my practice who are 300, 350 pounds, even 250 to 300 pounds, they, they have a lifelong history of obesity. Well, I would say it's common for them to have a lifelong history of being overweight, but much of the obesity comes on and develops and gets worse in the middle ages of, of, of humans in America. But I want to go back to one thing you just said. It's about the environment and the food we have available. And that I would agree with, Dr. Bell. Um, One of the interesting problems or solutions is take the food away. And guess what? In some parts of Africa, some parts of uh, South America and other places, Indonesia, India, there are parts that are very undernourished. They have a difficult time getting enough food and they're almost invariably skinny. So from that standpoint, the environment is preventing the obesity because as soon as those people move to the cities, get jobs, have money to buy as they wish, uh, they very frequently, not always of course, 25% perhaps, 30%, gain significant weight and become obese. So, yes, the environment can prevent obesity. However, that's not a healthy environment. It's an environment with high levels of infection, high levels of parasites, 
early death rates, much shorter longevity, et cetera. So I believe the environment does play a role, mostly on the bad side. That is the curtailment of available food. Well, what wait a minute, is, wait a minute. I knew you know, like that. <laughs> when I grew up, uh, we, I mean, there was food available, but it wasn't offered to us the same way it was offered to my kid, uh, to, to Zeke, as you know. I mean, uh, there were cookies at every corner of his classroom, and uh, yeah. th- we didn't Did have that. I mean, we, we had cookies, but we didn't have it all day and all night, and we were expected to wait uh, to eat lunch. There was a little more discipline about eating. There was plenty of food. There was plenty of food. And, um, you, you know, I, I, I grew up eating cafeteria food because my parents were doctors. They'd take me on rounds. I'd go to the cafeteria at the hospitals. And, uh, you know, I still think that's hot cuisine. And I didn't get obese. Uh, I, you know, I, I, and, and I wasn't sick. I mean, I, I, had the, I had immunizations and medications and all that. I was skinny as a rail. <clears throat> so is your son. He hasn't gotten obese despite being having food available anytime he wanted it. Yeah, but he, he wouldn't eat. He, he made a conscious decision when he was a little kid. He said, I'm never going to be fat. He couldn't stand it. <laughs> His mother's heavy set, and he said, I am not going to be like her. We'll see. That may not well, hold we true. We will see. We will see. And you weren't fat when you were his age either, Billy. Yeah, but you know, I've I've had so much ability to, or uh, opportunity because of affluence and age, and uh, I mean, we we do slow down, and I see this in my practice all the time that people say, "Well, I don't eat any more than I used to." And I said, "Yeah, but you're 65 years old, and you're not as active as you were 40 years ago, and your your hormones and your body chemistry change with age. So if you eat the same amount of calories, you're not burning them up like you used to. So you have to cut okay. it down." So, Dr. Bill, have you tried to cut down your calories before you had your bariatric surgery? I lost my mojo. You know, my next-door neighbor's husband and I started drinking beer together, and that just destroyed my life. Um, uh, that put on all your weight, <laughs> that middle-aged weight we're talking about. No, it wasn't the beer. It was all the, all the snacks we had while we were drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but, you know, I how, to how do you stop that... it? I mean, human nature is such that if there's food, you're going to eat. Most people, you know, it's genetic. I mean, you don't know when your next meal's coming at, at a very primitive level. Well, uh, you are right about that part, and it is highly genetic. And middle-aged onset obesity may be, although we don't really know it, Maybe a little different form of obesity than the obesity that develops in, in early childhood and teenagers. But the prevalent obesity is the obesity with middle age onset. The, the number of people with obesity starting in childhood or infancy is a very small number. Not that it's inconsequential. It is consequential. It's important, but it's a small number relative to what they call the obesity epidemic. That epidemic is almost all related to the increase at middle age. Well, the problem with with the uh, small numbers of people with the morbid obesity from infancy, childhood, uh, adolescence, whatever, uh, is that they account for a huge proportion of the health care bill. These people end up in the hospital early, they're sick, 
they have uh, multiple endocrine problems, heart failure, infections, and, you know, they're relatively young, and so the doctors try to keep them alive, and, you know, they're in the hospital 30, 60, 90 days, uh, and they, they, they eat up a, a, a huge proportion to their to the numbers, a huge amount of the healthcare resources. So uh, I would say that it's, although it may be a small number, it is not inconsequential to society. Whereas middle-aged obesity, uh, most of that can be handled outpatient. And even if you're overweight and your cholesterol's up, we have drugs now. We can keep you going forever. Well, I, I accept what you're saying. Uh, but the point is, that that young group, the ones that are taking up hospital beds, as you say it, have a serious disease. And even the American Medical Association now calls it a disease, meaning it's a, it's a metabolic abnormality based in the physiology of each of those individuals. It's almost none of it behaviorally induced. Wait a minute. Let me point out the leptin guy. Are you you saying that there's no cause and effect here? I mean, once you reach a certain, uh, have a certain amount of of extra body fat, you're going to alter your your hormonal uh, input, output, and that's going to have an effect on the brain, and that's going to turn off some genes and turn on other genes, and that doesn't mean that you're genetically predisposed. I mean, we may all have those genes at some point that may be turned on or off, although I'll go along with you that there certainly are people who are born genetically different and more prone to uh, uh, morbid obesity, just as there are people who are born genetically predisposed to drinking. But alcoholism is not a genetic disease. It's a behavioral disease. Some people have been trying to make the case that like alcohol and drugs, obesity is a food addiction. Um, I strongly reject that. There's just no evidence for a food addiction in 99% of people. There are a few with mental abnormalities, but we're not talking about those. The, um, the idea that food is somehow causing you to eat is not the answer. It's the other way around. You have a need, a feeling, a, you know, a body drive to eat. And fortunately, we are built so we don't forget to eat. We would have well, trouble I, if I th- we had to remember to eat. I, I, you know, I, I think that it's both. You know, I, I think that we're driven to eat genetically, some perhaps more so than others. But come on now, you tell me you can eat one potato chip? I mean, carbohydrates are sugars. They taste good, and I want more. Uh, you know, that's why I had my stomach cut out, because now I can't eat more, and my weight is staying down so far, so good. So I don't agree with you. I think food, especially carbohydrates, sugars, and salt, we crave that, and uh, we like that, and it makes us feel good short term. And so have- that... That, that is a there have st- been some good studies, really good studies, on the composition <clears throat> of diets and the ability to alter that composition to a composition that will result in weight loss, that is less weight, declining weight because of the diet composition. There has not been a single successful study that has shown that one composition of a diet 
is better for weight loss than another composition of a diet. Wait a minute. So you're you and I both love the potato chips. Well, we like potato chips. So what? That didn't make us obese. Wait a minute. You're changing the subject. I'm not talking about a diet because I know and you know that it's calories. And you can eat 1,000 calories of bacon a day or 1,000 calories of potato chips. And if you only eat 1,000 calories and you're burning 1,500 calories a day, you're going to lose weight. We know we that. We on that completely. We do agree. I mean, Never, so, but no. we're not talking about uh, diet and, and change in diet. What I'm talking about, it, you brought up the, the, uh, the addiction is, is not a factor in, in food and in eating and obesity. And I'm, I'm saying I think that it, it does play a part. I think that we're, that we're genetically predisposed to eat certain things and uh, that some people are perhaps genetically more predisposed. But, uh, you, you know, come on now. The, the carbohydrates so taste good. They agree, taste good. But, uh, you so do fats. And so do fats, yeah. People like that. Yeah. You try to eat pure protein. If you tried to eat pure protein powder, you couldn't get it down. It's like alum. It would make your mouth pucker. you got to have some fat in there uh, or it won't go down. You can't swallow it. And, uh, you know, so the fat is what attracts us to the protein and the carbohydrates, what, what attracts us to the calories. We need that. Uh, but, uh, there are ways of presenting it that are less, uh, less egregious. I mean, if you eat fruits and vegetables, uh, if you eat enough calories of fruits and vegetables, you're not going to lose weight, but you're going to fill up quicker on raw vegetables than you are on raw potato chips. Except you'll be hungry sooner. Well, that's too bad. You get, you're not getting anything else until dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the composition issue is one that has been very distorted in our food sections, and it's kind oh, of yeah. a fun. Um, it's a fun activity of uh, chefs these days to talk about healthy as if what they were making last year or the year before was not healthy. And that's just not true. Oh, it's you nonsense. You have to have the number of calories, number of calories, and obviously if you're in an extremely deprived situation, you might not be getting the vitamins and minerals you need, but that isn't the case for more than 90% of Americans today. Oh, of course. So There's nobody have... starving unless they're, they're you know, on yeah. the street drunk or they're hold up in their house and they don't want anybody to come in. Yes, that's true. Or they're abused and neglected. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So you go back to the bariatric surgery, Billy. I, I've always wondered how much hunger a person who's had bariatric surgery and is now eating half of what he normally ate, how much hunger did, did you feel in those first six months? Well, it's hard to tell because I couldn't tell if it was hunger or if my stomach hurt. Uh, and I, th I think that there's certainly, uh, I notice that I'm snacking less uh, in the afternoons. You know, I might have a granola bar, whereas before I would have three granola bars. So uh, satiety is, is of course, going to be quicker because uh, you have a smaller stomach. I mean, you just got a hot dog for a stomach now. So I'm, I'm not sure, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like I, I'm hungry, but I'm not sure if that's indigestion. 
and I'll try taking some antacids, and that seems to quiet it down. So but there's probably a, a behavioral or genetic, if, if you're a geneticist, as you believe, that that will stimulate the gut uh, at certain times during the day, and then you'll release acid, and your stomach will start to hurt. You'll want to eat. And I don't think that that's necessarily hunger. It may just be uh, uh, inflammation from vagal stimulation, from nerve stimulation of the stomach. Well, I'm a very strong promoter of bariatric surgery for people who are very obese. I think uh, there are not good behavioral methods to mitigate that obesity that are successful. The one thing that one has to know, though, and you ought to remember it, is that most people with bariatric surgery regain at least half of their lost weight. Some of them regain all of it, as was the case of The Biggest Losers. People know the television program, The Biggest Losers, and nearly all of them regained nearly all of their weight, despite their having worked so hard to lose weight. Well, wait a minute. Positive, it, there, yeah. There's there's more to it than that. You know, you you as a researcher uh, are lied to frequently, and uh, as a doctor, uh, I know everybody's lying to me. So I just call everybody a liar when they come in and sit down and talk to me. And and uh, as one of my surgical friends told me, he said I quit doing bariatric surgery when one of my patients came in and she had gained back almost all of her weight, and. Uh, questioned her repeatedly and finally she admitted she was going to Taco Bell and getting you know about 10 pounds of food putting it in the blender uh, with some water and milk and then just drinking it uh, because she (laughs) just liked the feel and the taste and as a researcher you don't see that because you take people at their word and people especially people who are obese or who have a drinking problem or who are a radio show host like me tend to lie a lot Well, let me counter that a bit. I think you're saying that the patient said they didn't eat. The question is, what drove them to regain after they had worked so hard? Yes, they ate their calories again, because that's the only way they could have gained weight. But what drove that? Well, do they almost all regain weight? If you've ever been in the home of uh, an eaten dinner with a really morbidly obese family with little kids, it's it's pretty sick because they shame the kids into eating. So eating is a punishment. Uh, there's there's anger uh, associated with it, and then with satiety, there's relief of that anger because then the parents stop yelling because you've eaten all of the junk food or or the thousand extra calories you didn't need, and so food becomes not only punishment, it becomes reward. That's very, very confusing, very confusing. And the behavioralist will tell you that's not a good situation. That is not a good situation. I mean, that's how we make, uh, you know, sociopaths. We use punishment and reward. We use abuse for punishment and reward. And so that they, they turn off emotionally and they say, hey, this is the only thing in life I know and it's fun. So I'm going to go out and abuse somebody else. So th- well, Billy, there's, I, uh, there's a lot of behavior. I get your point, but that's a very small number. That's a very small number. Probably well, that's what we're talking 10%. about is morbid obesity from childhood. But I mean, you're most, talking about the you're talking about middle age obesity in an affluent society, and and everybody's overweight. 
I mean, 80 percent of the population is overweight. But you're you're suggesting that this is due to bad behavior. I'm suggesting that there may be a genetic predisposition, but it's certainly tremendous environmental pressures that cause the morbid obesity of the small percentage of people that you're talking about, 350, 300, 350 pounds and up, who have been obese since childhood. I have no doubt about uh, that. Well, I would tell you, look at the parents. And there's only been one study, one in the last 50 years that has looked at adopted children and compared their body weights to the parents, the biological parents, and to the adoptive parents. Guess which set of parents the adopted children looked like? Well, of course, they're going to look like their biological parents. But what are the environmental pressures, too? You don't know. You're not in that household. So you don't know if the adoptive parents gave in to uh, unreasonable demands because they were predisposed and if they had had a different behavioral environment that they may not have eaten as much. They may have learned to control that just as we good parenting teaches us how to control our fear and our anger and turn it into productive energy. I mean, there there are ways to do that. And that doesn't mean that uh, the adoptive parents were bad parents. But you don't know the whole story. You know, it's the same thing with alcoholism. It's the same thing with sexual deviancy. You don't know what really goes on in these families unless you have a 24-7 video camera in the house, in every room, so you can see the interaction. And I I go through this, I argue this with my friends at the lunch table all the time, the other doctors, because they say, oh, it's got to be inherited. Show me. How do you know? You can't know unless you're in there on a 24-7 basis, and that right now, at our point in history, that's not possible. Well, I, I agree with you that you can't know all the details, but as a scientist working in this field for all of my career, I became very uh, aware of the very strong biology underlying the regulation of food intake. Okay, we tried well, I'm going to experiment gonna, early on where we changed the composition. I'm going to close this with an inflammatory statement, Doc. Um, <laughs> I have seen a progression, and then I have to go to break. I have seen a progression in our society where the women want to blame everything on genetics. You know what? That would alleviate them of any responsibility for their mothering. And there's something about that that just doesn't seem right to me. I may be wrong, and I may be overreaching, and I may be a sexist, which we all know I am, and and everything else. But I have seen this march in our society by the women to blame everything on genetics. And I don't agree with that. And that I'm going to close with that. And Dr. Hansen, thank you. You're so wonderful. I'll be over for my beer later tonight. My beer ration. And chips. I want chips. Have a, have a great day, Dr. Bill. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. We're going to go to uh, grab a cup of Joe. We'll be right back. And don't go away. I'm going to talk a little bit about the president and his foray into North Korea early this morning. Oh, boy. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD.
SRN News. I'm Patrick Foss with Grins and Handshakes. President Trump welcomed North Korea's Kim Jong-un at the heavily fortified demilitarized zone today, seeking to revive talks on the North's nuclear program in a bid for a legacy-defining accord. Mr. Trump became the first American leader to step into North Korea. South Korean President Moon Jae-in praised the two leaders for being brave to hold a meeting and said, I hope President Trump will go down in history as the president who achieves peace on the Korean peninsula. The captain who rammed her migrant rescue ship into an Italian police motorboat in defiance of Italy's anti-migrant policies has been arrested after docking at a tiny Mediterranean island. Republican lawmakers returned to the Oregon Senate on Saturday, ending an acrimonious nine-day walkout over a carbon emissions bill that would have been the second such legislation in the nation. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727 727- 7-3-8-4-6-4-1-1. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Across America, it's snoring season. 90 million Americans make this sound every night. If you have a blocked or narrow nose, you're more likely to open your mouth to breathe, causing snoring. Introducing an ingenious Australian invention called Mute. Mute is a comfortable nasal device that helps you breathe more easily through your nose and snore less. Put snoring season to bed, America. For more information, go to MuteSnoring.com. Mute. Breathe more, snore less, sleep better. Offer not valid in all states or where prohibited by law. Loans are subject to lender approval. See website for details. Need cash now? One of the nation's largest personal loan networks, GetCash.com, is the place to go when you need money fast. All you need is a checking account and a regular source of income. And you could get up to $5,000 discreetly with your computer or smartphone in as little as 24 hours, regardless of your credit history. Get the cash you need fast at GetCash.com. That's GetCash.com. GetCash.com. Thank you for making my dream a reality and publishing my very first book. Karen Notner is author of Is Jesus Your Pearl? You encouraged me, you laughed with me, and you held my hand through the entire process. Karen's publisher is Zulon Press. Do you dream about publishing? Make the dream real with America's fastest-growing Christian book publisher. Your free publishing guide is waiting at ChristianPublishing.com. Thank you so much to all the wonderful professionals at Zulon Press. Visit Zulon Press at ChristianPublishing.com. Dr. Bill here. Tired of toenail fungus? Me too. That's why I formulated Dr. Bill's antifungal toenail gel. Safe, non-absorbable, conveniently packaged in gel tubes, reasonably priced, six-month money-back guarantee. No herbs, no spices, no tree bark. Real medicine for real people. Only $29.95, 727. 
or online at drbillradiomd.com, eBay, and Amazon. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. We'll have variable cloudiness today with a couple of showers and a thunderstorm and a high of 88, then partly cloudy this evening, low tonight, 79. Tomorrow, we'll have sun and some clouds, high Monday, 91. Shower, thunderstorm in the afternoon on Tuesday, high 93. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Holly Holdren for AM 860, The Answer. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, and that's a little of Beyonce moving her body, moving that booty, or whatever it is she moves, I'm not sure. Uh, trying to get kids up in a, in a school lunchroom, being active, and we were talking about obesity, first half of the show, with Dr. Barbara Hansen, my very good friend and next-door neighbor. So I'm going to shift over because the president made a historic step into North Korea early this morning. Uh, I woke up at 1230 this morning. Uh, I sleep three or four hours, and I'm up, and I've got to do something and then go back to sleep and get up and do more. Um, kind of like a little kid, you know. I'm asleep and, and, and eat and work in shifts all day and all night. So the United States uh, has been trying to get the North Korean regime to uh, disarm, to get rid of their nuclear weapons and their intercontinental ballistic missiles and in their program. And as you know, the president has had some uh, tete-a-tetes, uh, the last one being in Hanoi and, and Vietnam. And the president got up from the table and walked away. And uh, this uh, bashed uh, the, the premier, Kim Jong-un. And uh, Kim, Jong- Kim Jong-un. And this... Uh, caused a lot of embarrassment and anxiety in North Korea, and reportedly there were people who were involved in the negotiations, high-level people who were killed or imprisoned because of the way that Kim Jong-un was made to look at the the conference when the president got up and walked away and said, you know, it's an all-or-nothing situation. Uh, The North Koreans, of course, want the sanctions lifted, and there are... uh, there are people who say that the sanctions aren't really that important because Kim Jong-un doesn't care about his people, and if they all starved to death, it wouldn't matter to him. And he may not emotionally care about them, but economically, somebody's got to do the work. So there is certainly an incentive on the part of the North Koreans to do business with the United States and to come back to the table because the sanctions and the embargoes and the uh, blockades are hurting them. Uh, They have cut their caloric rations for their people to around 1,500 calories a day. And you can't get much work done on 1,500 calories a day, especially if you're physically active uh, or if you're a growing adolescent. You're not going to grow. Uh, So the, the country is relatively starved, uh, except for the, uh, the elite, the ruling class. 
kind of reminds you of what what the Democrats would like for most of us, that we would all be on uh, rations and uh, that we would all be making the same amount of money while they lived the high life as the elite ruling class. That ain't going to happen. <clears throat> we'll go to war. We'll go to a civil war before that happens. But at any rate, the president made a historic step. He was in South Korea to meet with President Moon, and he tweeted to Kim Jong-un, hey, you want to meet at the border for a beer? I'm in town. And Kim Jong-un said, yeah. So uh, early this morning, our time, 2.30 in the afternoon, 3.30 their time, uh, the the president and President Moon headed to the demilitarized zone, which I've been to, and the press is calling it one of the scariest places on earth. Well, it really wasn't that scary to me, but uh, apparently there are people that are afraid, and I guess there are uh, weapons and uh, artillery pieces pointed at the south from the north, uh, and this disturbs a lot of people, and there are certainly uh, sharpshooters on both sides that are crawling around in that two to two and a half mile wide demilitarized zone that runs across uh, the Korea Peninsula and divides North and South Korea. And so we have never had a peace treaty after the Korean War with, with North Korea. And the push now is to, for, from the North and South Koreans' point of view, is to have a peace treaty. And the United States is saying, well, we're happy to do that, but we also want you to disarm, uh, and we want to help you become a prosperous uh, nation, just as South Korea is. And as we have helped build the South Korean and the Japanese after World War II, we'd like to rebuild you. And believe me, we can do it. This is a small nation, 25 million people. It wouldn't take much. And the North Koreans are like, well, we don't want to give up our weapons. Well, I think that the the uh, the gestalt here is and it's not that they don't want to give up their weapons. It's that the ruling elite class doesn't want to give up its power. And this is how you obtain power in the minds in the mindset of this elite ruling class is you hang on to your weapons and you make sure that you appear to be a threat to somebody and that you get your people marshaled behind you to help you. Uh, fight against these threats from the outside world. This is not new for Korea. This is not new. The United States expedition to Korea in the in the 1870s, uh, the Western disturbance in the Shinmi uh, in the year 1871, or simply the Korean expedition, was a military action in Korea. Korea was a closed uh, kingdom at that point. The uh, the dynasty that was in power at that time decided that they did not want the outside world uh, coming in and interfering with them because of all the incursions and uh, interference they had had over the, over the millennia from the Chinese and the Mongolians and the Japanese and all the other peoples in the area who had tried to and had at times successfully invaded the Korean Peninsula. Of course, this, this, uh, this, this mindset of isolationism doesn't protect you from outside attack. And so we had a ship that was uh, in the area, and they fired on the ship, the General Sherman, which was a merchant ship. And so we countered, and it was a punitive expedition, and it was launched uh, 10 days after the uh, 
United States Admiral in the area, in the, in the Western Pacific, did not receive a, uh, an official apology from the Koreans, and the Koreans apparently didn't mean to do this, or if they did, they, they didn't say anything, and they didn't apologize for it. So, so they shelled one of our merchant ships, and so we went in, and we actually went up the, the Han River up into what is now Seoul and, and uh, encountered the South, uh, the, the, not the South Koreans at that time, it was one country, the Koreans, and uh, it took about a decade, but we finally hammered out a group, an agreement with them. And this was the Treaty of Am- Amity and Commerce in 1882. And this actually opened up the Korean Peninsula to the world and to trade. Uh, and the treaty remained in effect until the annexation of Korea by the Japanese in 1910. So we have a long history with the Koreans. And then after World War II, we were involved in, in peacekeeping on the Korean Peninsula, which developed into the Korean War. And the Korean War was the North versus the South. The North Koreans attacked the South Koreans. The North Koreans were a communist regime under the Kim family. And uh, this brutal, uh, despotic, uh, backward, communist regime has been able to hang on to power through three generations now. Uh, and uh, it's it's more like a, a medieval court scene where uh, there's killing of brothers and uncles and anybody who might be a threat to the throne. So, but this is not new for the Koreans. You know, they, like the Chinese, they have lived under some kind of an emperor or a king for thousands of years. And they, they, probably just don't know any better. Now the South Koreans are smarter now. They figured it out, but that's because we brought democracy and freedom to them. So what does this mean? Well, it means that the North Koreans are being affected by the embargo, by the uh, trade uh, barriers, and by the, uh, uh, the the sanctions that we have put on that country and that we have been enforcing. But, you know, there are cheaters. There are cheaters in South Korea who want to use the North Korean cheap labor, and so they're doing business uh, surreptitiously with the North Koreans and also the Chinese and the Russians. The Russians actually border North Korea, so there's a little narrow strip of land that goes right up to Vladivostok, uh, which is their big city, the Russians' big city on the Pacific uh, in the uh, eastern part of Russia, the Far East, their Wild West. And, of course, China has a big chunk of land that borders uh, North Korea. The Yalu River separates the two countries, uh, really becomes more of a stream or a trickle as you go further uh, further northeast and into the peninsula. So there's there's a lot going on, and we know that the Chinese are laundering money for the North Korean regime, and some of that money's ending up in New York banks. We know that. Uh, and and so we, we have the opportunity to put more and more pressure on the North Koreans, not only on the, on the common populace by starving them to death, but also on the uh, ruling elite by cutting off their their money laundering abilities. Uh, the Chinese, of course, don't want to see the United States station troops on the peninsula. Uh, they're still a little leery of us. And uh, 
we don't have a problem with pulling out if North Korea will disarm and will come into the into the world community of nations and behave. And so the rub here is that we see the world as one place where everybody can get along if they want to, and the North Koreans see it as a hostile world, and they're looking to China and Russia and saying, protect us from these evil Americans and these evil Westerners. This is not new. This has been going on for 150 years. The, the Koreans have had the mindset that the West is evil and is out to get them. Well, what happened? How did South Korea morph into this uh, this uh, really super first world country? I mean, I've, I've been there twice, and it's just unbelievable. They're, I mean, their cities are nicer than ours. Uh, their infrastructure is better than ours. Uh, everybody's driving a car. There's plenty of food. There's good health care. The subway system in Seoul is unbelievable. Uh, and you can say, well, yeah, but, you know, this has all been built relatively recently, whereas New York's subway system has been a work in progress for over 100 years now. That's true. That's true. There's no doubt about that. And so it's easier just to kind of uh, do a little facelift and put in some new track and new cars than it is to create a whole new system. So we'll see how it looks in 100 years in Seoul. Nevertheless, South Korea is doing extremely well. And how can we convince the North Koreans to join us and to join the world community in a way that is effective not only for their people, but also for the peace and harmony of the world? Well, I think that stick and carrot approach is exactly what you got to use. I mean, you're dealing with uh, a primitive mindset. Uh, these are uh, perhaps adults and intellectually capable, but emotionally they're, they're very small children. And you're not going to get anywhere by sitting down and trying to reason with them. So you say, look, if you're good, you're going to get a cookie. And if you're bad, you're not going to get any dinner tonight. And I'm going to send you to your room. And, I mean, it's so simple. It's such a primitive culture in that respect that it's so simple to deal with them. And why it took us so many presidents to get to one who actually understands that and knows how to do it uh, is, is a little puzzling, but nevertheless, we're here. And the president is making the effort, you know, and you got to make your eff the effort with kids. You have to go to them and say, hey, how was school today? How you been? And I was really curious to see what you did, your artwork, and on and you go on and on, and, and you have to be interested in your children. And you have to show them that you're willing to come to them. You can't make them continually come to you. They're not going to like that. Kids won't do that. And they'll grow up resenting you. So we don't want resentment. We do want good behavior. And there are two different things. And we know that discipline uh, along with, with love is important in ensuring that we have uh, a good balance as as children develop into adults, and I've talked about this before, about the, uh, the uh, on Father's Day, I talked about this and the role that a father plays, and the, that we're doing the exact same thing. And we should, we should, we should. We are the daddy. Does that mean we're a perfect daddy? No, of course not. We make mistakes like anybody else. But most of the world looks to us and to our influence. 
Now you say, well, aren't you worried about the Chinese and their involvement with the North Koreans? Listen, the Chinese can build their military machine as big as they want. What happened to the Soviet Union? They built their military machine to the detriment of their population, and they collapsed. They couldn't sustain it. And we are having an effect on the Chinese economy by saying, you know, you've got to do certain things. You've got to change your trade policies. You've got to curtail your military activities in the South China Sea. We're not going to trade with you. And it's hurting them. And I know because I'm texting the Chinese salespeople for my uh, toenail fungus gel and on all the things that I need to do that, whether it's uh, pharmaceutical equipment, packaging equipment, whatever it is. I'm talking to these people on a weekly basis and I'm asking them, how's the economy? It's slowing down in China. It's slowing down because of us. They know that. And we know that. Now, the Democrats may say we're not having an effect, but, you know, they're just playing to their their base, and they want a socialist country, so they want a one-party system like China has, and like basically Russia and, and a lot of the uh, countries have. It's one party. It's actually not socialism. It's fascism. They can hold out certain businesses to private, remain private, and, and certain things will so the Chinese are in a bad spot. They're trying to show their people that they can provide both uh, an economically sound and a progressive uh, country as well as a militarily strong country, but they want to remain a one-party system. One of the doctors in the lunchroom, who is from China 30 years ago, he emigrated here, he said he listened to the Voice of America, and uh, if it had been 40 years ago, he probably would have been locked up. But 30 years ago, there was a little more tolerance after Mao died, and his, some of his neighbors knew that he was doing it but ignored it, and he said he learned so much. And he decided, I'm leaving. I'm going to the United States. And he says, as people learn more about the outside world, which will be hard to stop them from doing with the Internet, that the society in China is going to prevent democracy. That I talk with the Chinese, there's more openness and more understanding of the world and the world economy, but they still don't understand all of it, so we have to keep at it. So, hurrah for the president. Hurrah for Kim Jong-un for coming down and shaking his hand. And history, the man stepped into North Korea. Oh, boy. That's our spokesperson, Donald Trump. We love him. So what do we got? About 30 seconds left here. 30 seconds. Oh, my God. Dr. Barbara Hanson, thank you for coming on today. And let's see, got to say hi to Chet and all my buds who are listening today. And Kenny. And I, I hope Kenny sobered it up. And... <laughs> I'm going to go over tonight and check on him and see how he's doing. And uh, I, I'm just so happy about the toenail gel. Give us a call at 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Order your ticket.